Please do not message or call, as the following programme is a rerun of a previous live show. Any announcements made during the repeat may now not be applicable. Salam. Welcome to Ask Your Lawyer show. I'm pleased to have you join us. Today we will be uh, discussing a general overview of employment, criminal and immigration law. In addition, you can expect to hear about interesting cases and personal experiences from my esteemed panel of guests. Remember, you can contact us on 01582 481822, that's our landline, or 0779 481822 on our WhatsApp. Alternatively, email us at info at inspirefm.org. So today the aim is to discuss three distinct areas and get an overview of them. Today I have local lawyers who have kindly given up their own time to be with us here today. So without further ado, let me introduce each panel. Bodil, can you introduce yourself? Asalaamu Alaikum. My name is Bodil Lamin. I'm an employment solicitor with Liberty Law Solicitors. Brilliant. Um, before I turn to my other guests, let me find out, because I'm sure the listeners are wondering, where is Atik Malik? And I have this brings me on to my next guest, Giyaz Udin. Can you introduce yourself? Asalaamu Alaikum Warahmatullahi Wabarakatuh. Um, brothers and sisters, my name is Giaz, and I'm a uh, director at Wolf & Co. Solicitors in Luton. Uh, I happen to be a partner of Atik Malik, um, who is not here with us today. Um, obviously, Dean's pressing me to give you an answer of where he is. Um, and inevitably, as everyone knows, Atik spends a lot of time at his in-laws, so he's probably at his in-laws if I was to hazard a guess. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't think I need to ask any more than that. <laughs> Fair enough. And without further ado, uh, I introduce my uh, third guest, Shaquille Shah. Asalaamu Alaikum. My name is Shaquille Shah and I work for Wolf & Ghost Listers. Uh, brilliant. Right. I suppose, Bodril, I'll begin with you, um, and maybe you can tell me a bit about what you do and give me an overview of what, what it is. Well, in my day-to-day job, um, I deal with employment cases, so um, sometimes I act for claimants in respect of employment matters, unfair dismissals, discrimination claims, redundancy, um, the full spectrum of employment cases. I also advise businesses and HR companies in respect of employment law, so that could be, for example, drafting um, staff handbooks, contracts of employment, and advising on general day-to-day issues. Um, I also conduct litigation in the employment tribunal, um, so that can involve um, um, attending tribunals and uh, uh, presenting cases on behalf of um, the employer or employee. Right, okay. Um, so how do cases start in your area, employment law? Well, employment law, depending on... You know, if you're an employee, the starting point would be from, for example, if you were to if you were to lose your job, that would be one starting point. Um, another starting point could be if you were discriminated against. Um, another possible starting point could be if you were not paid um, correctly, or your employer decides to withhold your wages. So there's different starting points in employment law depending on um, the situation that you find yourself in. Okay, and are those the main types of cases that you you have? Yeah, like I said, it's full spectrum of 
employment law issues. Um, what we say is um, from you know A to Z, or you know from you know a whole spectrum of cases on unfair dismissal, redundancy, discrimination claims, um, redundancy, QP. So different types of employment law. And for listeners out there, where do these claims start? Well, the starting point is, you know, for example, if you were to lose your job, that would be a starting point. Um, If you were to, um, you know, if you had some kind of dispute at work with the employer, um, if you were discriminated against at work, that would be the starting point, depending on the situation. And where would it end up? Well, potentially it could end up in the employment tribunal. Um, So that would be where your case would be heard if you had an issue. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Gears, can I bring you into this and tell me about your area of law? Um, I am currently um, practicing criminal defence law. Um, My typical day-to-day activity would be attending court, attending the police stations, um, attending council um, interviews, representing clients. Some of it's to do um, would be drafting arguments, legal arguments, um, and sending bail applications, X, Y, Z, to um, court and to the CPS. So for the listeners not familiar with the criminal procedure, procedures, mm-hmm. where do cases start? The genesis of all criminal cases, essentially what would happen is you'd get an accusation, the police would either arrest you, um, and then you'd either be charged, requisitioned, or someone to go to court. That's where normal criminal cases start, yeah. And I suppose the question I, I have is, how are these cases funded? Right, there are two ways to fund criminal cases. Generally in the police station, everyone gets legal aid. So basically you go there um, and you don't have to pay your lawyer to represent you. You just request a lawyer and the police will either uh, get that person for you or you can request a duty solicitor and they'll go for you. The government pays for your representation, but your lawyer isn't representing the government, they represent you. Um, when it goes to court, you do have to make a means-tested legal aid application. There is, there's two tests for legal aid. One is the interest of justice test and one is the financial means test. So what they do is basically, in general, I'm not going to go into it too much, the first test is based on whether you're whether think there's justification in a case, how serious it is for, that you should be entitled to lawyer. For, for example, will you be going to prison? Will you be losing your job? If there is a risk, they generally tend to um, grant you legal aid. The second part of the test is based on your income. So they look at how much your household income is. And to be honest with you, it's quite difficult um, to qualify for legal aid these days um, because if your income is over 12,500 circa, that figure... Um, you don't generally get legal aid. Um, if it does go to the Crown Court, which I will go to and uh, explain a bit more in a bit, sometimes you get a uh, contribution based, which means that you'll be paying a contribution towards your legal costs. The other means is obviously private paying. So you approach a lawyer and say, look, I, I won't qualify for legal aid, or you don't qualify for legal aid after you've applied. And um, then you arrange um, for fees to be paid. Okay, I suppose my only question is, does it irrespectively cover any matter going towards the police station? Yes. yes. What about council meetings? Council meetings, there is um, 
uh, uh, provisions for legal aid. Um, however, I think what's happening is there is a tend, the, uh, tendency these days, so, sorry, that um, firms don't apply for legal aid in, that, in, in those circumstances and they ask clients to pay privately uh, and it's a separate matter which and a separate justification so there's no need to go into it at the moment. Fine. Perfect. Well, I'll come back to you about but, Crown Court. But you can't get legal aid technically. So you always recommend yeah. ask your lawyer. Ask your lawyer. That's Perfect. absolutely correct. Yeah. Right. I'll come back to you on uh, Crown Court matters. Um, I suppose I should bring in Shaquille, who's been very quiet, and speak about a bit of immigration. Hi, Shaquille. Can you introduce me to immigration? Uh, yeah, immigration kicks in when somebody wants to migrate to another country, say, for example, to UK or any other country, and they need a entry clearance, a visa or a permit, entry permit to reside in that country or visit, perhaps. Okay. How do cases generally start in the immigration then? So the case starts when someone wants to come to the UK or someone wants to bring their family members to the UK to join them or someone just comes uh, by uh, ships or lorries or whatever and just uh, attends the borders and wants entry clearance. Okay, and how do they go about it? How do they start it all off? So they start it all off by making an application uh, for entry clearance if they are outside the UK. If they are already in the UK, they just make an application inside the UK. And European citizens, are they separate? Uh, European citizens, they have they are allowed visa-free entry because the UK is part of European Union at the moment. So they are allowed in the UK before Brexit. I won't get on to the topic of Brexit. That will be a, <laughs> an hour and a half debate. Great. Um, and generally, where do these matters end up? So I know an application is made. Where is the application made to? Uh, to the Home Office. And is it only the Home Office that's applicable? Uh, yeah, that's only the Home Office for the first entry clearance. And then it goes, uh, if they refuse it, then we go to tribunals. And uh, there's different types of tribunals. Okay. And I suppose the other example is, let's say I'm residing in the UK, but I want to bring my spouse over. Is yep. that something as well that falls in within your area? Yes, of course it does, yeah. That's the one of the main visas, which is leads to settlement, permanent residency. Okay, great. I suppose now back to you, Bodril. Mm-hmm. So, Bodril, you're just to give you a bit of overflow, uh, overview of who I am. My name's Dean Garrett. Mm-hmm. I'm also from Liberty Law, and I work in the Employment and Civil Department. So, Bodril's one of my colleagues. Uh, so I can test him a bit on employment law, but I'll go easy on it. <laughs> you say that cases go to the employment tribunal at worst case scenario. Are there steps that a solicitor can take before reaching the employment tribunal? Of course, because the tribunals themselves try to ensure that people try to resolve the issues before it goes to a tribunal. Um, and that's, I suppose, the case with any civil dispute, is that you should try to resolve the issues before um, you end up in a court or tribunal. So there's a number of steps. Um, one of the main sort of advisory services, ACAS, um, and ACAS set out how people can go about um, resolving their issues. So if you've got an issue at work, one of the first steps that you can take is to raise a grievance. And basically, with a grievance, what you're stating is that you're unhappy with certain aspects of your employment. Um, now, 
sometimes issues are resolved by the grievance procedure. Sometimes issues are not resolved and you have to get external assistance, for example, the assistance of a lawyer. Um, what we try to do often is, before we submit a claim, is to have what's known as without prejudice conversation. Without prejudice conversation is an off-the-record conversation uh, whereby I try to settle the matter before um, it um, ends up in the tribunal. So, really, those are the steps potentially that we take in order to avoid uh, cases going to tribunal. Because if you're a, um, an employee, taking a case to a tribunal is um, can be quite complicated. Um, it can also be quite costly unless you have some form of insurance in place or you can afford to pay your own um, legal costs. So really the aim of the game is to try to reach some form of settlement before embarking on a tribunal case. I suppose touching on that, there is one big difference in employment law compared to civil law, and that's about costs. Can you elaborate a bit more on that for me? Yeah, with, with tribunal claims, there's an own cost regime. So each side pays their own costs. Um, so if you were to take a case to the tribunal and you were to lose that case, then generally speaking, you don't pay for the other side's costs. Um, so there are some exemptions to that, um, whereby you could be uh, awarded costs against you, uh, but generally it's quite rare. Only in 5% of cases are costs awarded uh, in an employment tribunal. Um, so... Yeah, generally it's an own cost regime. You pay your own costs. If you were to lose the case, you don't end up paying the other side's costs. Which is different to county court matters, civil matters, where the winner generally takes all. So That's if you right. win your claim, you take your other side's costs. That's correct, yeah. Great. I think I'll come back to you on ACAS and how to actually start a claim. But in the meantime, I'll come back to Gears and uh, we can talk about first appearances and Crown Court matters. Okay, great. Um, so... Once you've been asked to go to court, by whichever means, like I said, you can be charged, requisitioned, summoned, you appear in the magistrate's court. And when you go to the first appearance, generally what you're looking to do is they're looking to see how you want to progress your case. There are three types of offences. There's the summary offences, either way offences, and then you've got the indictable offences. I'll just quickly give you an overview of each one. Please do. Um, the summary offences, generally the lower level offences that are dealt with solely in the magistrate's court. There are certain specific times that they can be sent to the Crown Court, but that's generally is if there's an indictable of either way offence and they get sent up with them. So you'd be dealing with it in front of magistrates or a district judge. And basically those offences carry a maximum of six months imprisonment and or a fine. Um, you're getting the lower level offences like traffic, low-level assaults and things like that, where your punishments will be relatively low. The second type of offences is the either-way offences. Now, either-way offences, they're a particular type of offence where the mechanisms of um, committing the offence are the same, but the there, there'll be a variable there which can go up and down. So if I give you a working example... Um, say theft, when you steal something. Um, you can steal a sandwich from a shop and by the same mechanism, essentially, or the basic mechanisms, you can steal a diamond. Yeah? Clearly, both of them shouldn't face the same kind of punishment and both of them don't carry the same type of severity in terms of case. So, 
when it's the lower level types of theft, people think, okay, should we try this in the magistrate's court? Because realistically, if somebody steals a sandwich, um, we can deal with it. You're not going to get over a six-month sentence at the highest level of a case, so we can deal with it in the magistrate's court. Whereas, by the same token, if if you've stolen a diamond ring, clearly six months or sort of... A very expen- something very expensive and people are going to think really should he be or should that person be uh, dealt with in the magistrate's court no we should send it to Crown Court so they can get a longer sentence than six months um, so that's a general overview of the either way offences the indictable offences are the more serious ones um, the murders and terrorism and those types of cases where clearly you need to be dealt with in front of a ju- judge and jury and things like that I should ex- explain that in the magistrate's court You'll generally be, you'll be dealt with by, like I've said, uh, a magist- uh, bench of magistrates or uh, uh, a district judge in a crown court. You will be facing uh, a jury trial if you do go to a trial in the crown court. Okay. You can actually elect if you've got either way offence to stay in the magistrates court or go to the crown court. Well, you brought me on to the next question I had. Yeah. I often hear this term elect to go to a crown court. Yeah. What's the advantage in going to a crown court if there's a uh, much higher sentence? Yeah. The, I think using the word advantage is a misnomer. Um, there are differences between the magistrates court and the crown court. Now, the magistrates court, and I'm only talking through experience. Uh, um, um, my own personal experience is the magistrate's court has lesser power but I think uh, personally it tends to exercise the power a bit more whereas in the crown court you're in, you're likely to see judges who are dealing with very very serious cases so they tend to um, exercise severity a bit less if you understand what I'm saying um, also in the crown court obviously you get a jury testing cases you fully go through the evidence with the magistrates court you get non-qualified magistrates now the system does work i'm not criticizing the system but um i found that there's all sorts of factors um that can be of advantage and disadvantage in a magistrates court which don't manifest themselves in a crown court okay so i guess each case depends absolutely each one each case on its own merits and we would advise each client if someone came along to me and said should I stick in the magistrate's court or should I twist and go to the crown court we'd look at the case look at the client see what the background's like see what the evidence is and then advise them accordingly and that's the way you should handle it it's not simply I'm going to choose this I'm going to choose that that's not how it works no so it's quite a lot of thought process goes into this everything has a pro- thought process yeah and it's specifically those kind of things it can be it can be very critical. Uh, not to forget, there is one thing to be considered as well. If you get convicted in the magistrate's court, they can send you to the Crown Court for sentence anyway. So that's something to consider as well. Okay. Well, I'll come back to you about sentencing and yeah. guilty pleas um, and credit on that. But let me go back to my immigration specialist, Mr. Shah. So on immigration, I know we've spoken about different visa applications that can be made and generally they're made applied to the uh, home office. Yeah. Once an application is made and it's rejected by the Home Office, can you talk me through how you can advance that? Is there an appeal mechanism? Yeah, usually, the say, if it's a spouse visa, there is an appeal mechanism. They refuse the Home Office casework or entry clearance officer is not satisfied with the application. Therefore, they refuse it with the reasons given that these, these are the reasons and grounds for refusal. You take that ground and you've got 28 days outside the UK. If you're outside the, making an application outside the UK, you have 28 days to appeal against this decision to a tribunal, which is first-year tribunal. 
And if it's within the UK, that's 14 days to appeal. And what happens if you miss your deadline? If you miss your deadline, you you miss it, but you have to give a good reason why it was missed or why you take longer to submit your appeal. They still consider it, but they will they will want to know the reason why it was delayed. Okay. Um, well, on that note, I've actually got a WhatsApp message come through. Um, this is addressed to Gears. Um, what is the time limit for appealing? But before we do that, I think we may have someone on the phone. So if I just continue with Shaquille. Yep. Um, I know that we have... Um, I know that uh, you, you've mentioned about the different uh, options there in relation to appealing. Um, well, bear with me. I think we are going to have a phone call. Hello. Oh, hi there. How... Can I can I take your name? Hi, my name is Sandra. Hi, and do you have a question Sandra for Brandon. us? Yes, my question was: um, if I was to be if I was to get arrested, do I have to court? Do I have to have a duty sister? Um, is it is it you know is it imperative that I have to have a, a duty sister? All oh, right, this is a question for Mr. Udin. I thank you very much for your question, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to answer that for you. Uh, thank you for your question, um, listener. Um, there's a simple answer to that. Is it imperative to have a duty solicitor? No. You do have a choice to have your own solicitor. Um, it's imperative to have a solicitor, though. You don't have to have the duty solicitor. You can certainly call or uh, ask the police to uh, you, to ask for your nominated solicitor. So whatever their details are, you say, I want this person or that person. And the, the uh, police officers... And the custody sergeant specifically, they'll go and look for that solicitor and rec- ask them to attend the police station for you. So just to reiterate, um, it's not imperative to have the duty solicitor. It is imperative to have a solicitor, in my opinion. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. And uh, we have, a, as I said, we have got a, t- uh, a question come through on WhatsApp. And this is a message from Barry, and it's a question for Giz Udin but we have nine seconds to go to the advert. So uh, let me take this moment to take a break. And please do join us. Stay tuned. We've got a lot more to discuss. So, Lam, welcome to your Ask Your Lawyer show. You've rejoined us after a break. Um, Let me introduce you back again to my panel. I have three uh, local lawyers with me, uh, Mr. Bodjo Amin. Hello. Assalamualaikum. Mr. Shaquille Shah. Assalamualaikum. Okay. And Mr. Giz Odin. Assalamu alaikum. Now listen again, if you um, if you want to get in contact with us, please do. Contact us on 01582 481822 on the landline. Or alternatively, message us on WhatsApp on 0779481822. Or email us at info at inspirefm. Now just before the break, we had a question um, in relation to... Um, I've forgotten what the question was now, Mr. Hedden. What was it in relation to, and can you recap that for us? I think it was in relation to appeals. Yeah, and the, the telephone question? Oh, sorry. Um, right, um, I think we... Do you we need a duty solicitor, and do you always have to ask for one at the police station? Um, like I've said before, we you I would recommend that you definitely use a solicitor. Um, but you don't have to ask for the duty solicitor at all. No, that's not how the scheme works. If you 
don't have a solicitor, you can ask for the duty solicitor and they will come and represent you. If you do have a solicitor in mind and you don't, you do want someone to specific to represent you, all you need to do is ask the officer to request that specific solicitor or that firm and generally they will call them and if they're available, they will come down. Right, you've said that you definitely need a solicitor. Can you just take me over why? Several reasons, really. Um, I don't want to particularly come across as someone who's going to criticise the whole system and the police and what they're doing inside the police station, but inside a police station, when somebody gets arrested, they are a suspect for a crime. They are not there to assist the investigation. They are not there... um, just on the whim of someone, you were there accused of committing a crime. The consequences of, of being convicted or pleading guilty to, some, uh, uh, to an offence are severe on each person. It affects your employability. Sometimes it affects your liberty and freedom. What you need to do is request a, a solicitor who will go there, advise you of your rights. They will advise you of the procedure. They, will, they can be a liaison between you and your family. If you refuse that legal advice, even on the most trivial offence. What you're doing is you're waiving your own rights for no particular reason whatsoever. Uh, So I would thoroughly suggest that you do ask for a solicitor and so that simply because your legal rights are are enforced and you're informed of them, if nothing else. Brilliant. Thank you for that answer. I think we've got another phone in. So let's listen to this. Hi there, listener. Hi, do you have a question for us? I do, yes. Uh, it's regarding uh, family law. Okay. Um, how can we help on this? So basically, um, I'm just going to keep it brief. Um, so I've got access to my daughter. Um, I've had access in the last three years. There's a court order in place. Now, my ex-wife, what she's done is she's suspended the order. She's made false allegations against me. Um, and um, so basically, and we've got another hearing coming up that sh- that she's put forward for for an emergency hearing. Um, so I, I don't know what to expect, to be honest. Okay. I don't know what to do. I'm looking at my panel. Does anyone want to, want to answer this question? I certainly haven't got the expertise on family law. Um, really I'm, I'm not a family law specialist <laughs> either, to be honest. And Mr. Shah? No, uh, I wouldn't be advising on criminal. What I can say uh, to the listener is that in relation to family law, it's a very technical um, matter. And what, we would, what you would need to do is prep for, for the hearing that's coming up. If you can contact our firm, we'll be more than happy to put you in touch with someone who does specialise in family law. Okay, no problem. I will do that for you, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Thanks for calling. Bye. And we have another question from another listener. Hi there. Is this, uh, can you introduce yourself to me? Hello, good evening. My name is Shazia. Oh, hi. How can I help? So I have an immigration question. Um, I'd like to bring my husband over from Pakistan. 
can you tell me how I go about doing that, please? And what do I need to get in, in, in place? Brilliant. What I'll do is I'll introduce you to Mr. Shah, our immigration specialist, and see how he can help you. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Oh, um, so she, the question was that she wants to bring her spouse from Pakistan. So first thing they need to do is if they have to have to be married. If they're not married, then they need to get married. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the first step. And then they come down to making an application. So there are certain requirements for applications, for spouse visa applications. There's, um, there's three parts to this application. The first part is you make an online application, which is uh, completed by uh, the applicant or his, super, or his um, representative. And the second part to it is uh, the person who is in Pakistan, they um, submit their passport and their pictures in Pakistan. And the third stage to that is we submit sponsors bundle, which is from the UK. So the bundle has um, uh, all the requirements into it. So um, there are requirements within the UK, which a sponsor needs to complete. And then there are also requirements for the applicant to um, to follow as well. So sponsors, from the sponsor side, obviously she's a sponsor. So first thing she needs to have is an employment so she needs to be working and she needs to be earning 80, over £18,600, which means um, she's earning over the threshold of income if she meets that threshold, unless she's exempt, like due to medical conditions or if she gets carer's allowance, that will obviously exempt her from the 18600 threshold. So once she meets that threshold, she needs employment contract and a permanent employment uh, uh, certificate. So that means she has to have at least six months' employment with the pay slips for every month, and each and every month has to meet the certain minimum uh, uh, payment of the every month, which means which is fifteen hundred sixty-five pounds uh, uh, before tax. So if every day you need the Home Office, the way they look at it is they take the very lowest monthly wages, and then they multiply that by twelve. And that's how they work out their wages. Even if you are getting £25,000 and one of your wage slip within that six months is only £900, they will just merely take that and just make a decision on the basis that you are, you are not earning over 1565 It's not very good to listen because you are way over the threshold. But unfortunately, this is how it works with the Home Office and these sort of cases. So once she's done the employment side, then she, um, the applicant needs to uh, satisfy the English requirement. So the English requirement is they have to have a level of English that they can communicate communicate with the other person, speaking, listen, listening, reading and writing. So there are um, uh, institutes which, which are uh, regulated by Home Office. They are in Pakistan as well. They need to undertake a test, which is uh, uh, A-level of English. So once they pass that, then they also need... Uh, um, a certificate of their medical medical certificate, which uh, usually is TB certificate. So they, if if they are positive, then they have to get treatment. So at least they have to declare. So on arrival, upon arrival, they want them to get treated before they enter the country. Oh, right. So it's quite a detailed yeah. procedure. Um, maybe for the listeners, it might be helpful if we do an article and post it up later on yeah. this topic because yeah. I, I feel we cannot cover it in in more than that. Yeah. Do, do you mind if I ask Mr. Shah a question in relation oh, sure. to this? Um, yep. uh, discounting the EU, are those same rules applicable applicable to 
all other countries. I know I only asked because this was about Pakistan. And um, before my wife starts panicking, it's Bodril that made me ask that question for, for his own reasons. Yeah, these rules do apply outside the EU. So they do apply to every country outside the EU. Okay, okay yeah. brilliant. brilliant. Some in, some countries do not have to satisfy English requirements because they're English speaking. Other than that, the requirement and the TB tests, other than that, requirements are same for every other country. Brilliant. Thank you for the question. Shasha, okay. thank you very much for your phone call. I hope you've got an overview of that. And what we'll do is we'll put an article up there to thank assist you. you. Okay. And she can always contact us much. and... Uh, we can obviously sit down and have an advice session and we can go through each and every stage uh, properly and then give a proper advice on how to go about it. Brilliant. So this is not the final Thank advice. Thank you, that was very informative. Yeah. Thank you, that was very informative. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And we have another question, immigration, I believe, from Imran. Yeah. Do you have your question there, Imran? Uh, yes, hi. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Wa uh, my my question was, um, I would like to bring my uh, elderly parents over. They're both over the age of 70. Um, the colleagues currently reside in uh, Kenya. Um, now, I, I'm aware of the uh, general rules, um, you know, the fact that they, they have to be uh, financially um, uh, reliant on myself, uh, you know, that, and that they shouldn't have any sort of ties left back there. Now, the problem that I have um, is that they they have uh, substantial um, uh, sort of means, if you like. How can I go about that if, if we want to dissolve everything there? Um, because I know that every time they get visas, they put a, a sort of uh, explain, you know, what they have and all that. And, um, how do I go about that? Because at the moment, my brothers aren't there anymore, so they haven't got any uh, sort of social ties or um, uh, relatives left. All their friends are here, you know, sort of, you know, and I, they come back and forth. But I feel that now, at an age now, where they need to be around me um, so that I can sort of uh, look after them. So if you can just tell me, you know, how do I go about uh, the, the financial side of things? Because they have wealth. Um, but how do I go about saying that, you know? Um, well, you know, if, if you just give me a, a wee bit of a guidance there. Okay, thank you very much for your question. Okay, the, it was really low and it, was, it wasn't very clear. But if you just phrase, oh, rephrase the question, Dean, so I can... Cause, um, so the question, as far as I understand from uh, Imran, is that if... Um, if the substantial means, what would you recommend uh, the, a client do in order and how they declare it and how to work around that in an, any application made? So the, it's, you're talking about the income threshold, yes. yeah, the financial means. Yeah. Sorry, I couldn't hear you properly, brother. Um, so the financial means, one is the employment, which is written and obviously certified by your employer that you have. Um, that? Well, more purposely, if, if they are retired now yep. um, and they have a lot of, uh, you know, savings, for example, ha has that got any implications and should they be alert to any factors when making an application here? Yeah, they have to declare their savings and there is another way to meet the threshold by the way of savings. 
if they if they don't meet the threshold and they have saving of over sixty two thousand five hundred, then they can meet the requirement by savings. Then they say they can support their wife as long as she wants. And once she comes to the UK, she has five to ten years to get sorry. permanent resident. I think they're talking about the opposite. Uh, sorry, I, I, what I sorry, I think, uh, I think what I meant was not so much what I have, but rather my parents have. Um, they they have substantial means back in Kenya. Um, now I know that one of the requirements is that you know they, they they should be reliant on me as opposed to the other way around. But um, how do I sort of because if they say that I have X amount of uh, properties and X amount of savings, they might say, well you're you're quite well off. Why do you need to come to the UK? And would that be one of the uh, Topics that they might sort of refuse their uh, application in that respect. Um, your question is not very clear as to what you want to achieve because. Uh, um, so I was looking at the guidelines. Yeah. And, uh, what, uh, the guide- what, what I recommend is because this yeah. is uh, each co- each country brings with it its separate rules, particularly from Kenya and other. Uh, what what we can do is take your details yeah. down and email you directly, if that's okay. That- yeah, yeah, that'd be yeah, and I think that way we can deal with this and un- better understand what, what you need from us and what advice, okay. and we can point you in the right direction. Is that okay? That that would be fine. Mm-hmm. No problem. Thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Well, that was a flurry of uh, uh, questions. Um, Bodil, let's give you uh, an opportunity to speak again. So, Bodger, I know I said to you, oh, time's flying. Um, I know I said to you, we'll go come back to ACAS. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk me through ACAS quickly? And particularly, why do we mention it and why is it so uh, crucial to us? Well, ACAS is an advisory body uh, which has been set up. And the purpose of ACAS is to give guidelines to employers and employees in terms of how to uh, manage situations in the workplace. So it could be disciplinary, discrimination, uh, grievances, uh, sickness, absence. So a whole range of issues um, that can be dealt with via the ACAS um, service. And before you start a claim in the Employment Tribunal, you have to start what's known as ACAS Early Conciliation. So you have to go for the conciliation service, which is a free service, and ACAS will try to conciliate on your behalf uh, with the employer. Um, if they're not able to come to a solution um, or no settlements offered, uh, then you'll be issued with a certificate and you can issue a claim in the tribunal. So that's the relevance of ACAS uh, in terms of employment um, issues. Um, also, if employers fail to follow ACAS um, procedures and guidelines, then tribunals have the um, power to potentially increase any compensation by up to 25%. Um, and that works both ways as well. For example, if you've issued a claim to the tribunal and you've not followed the employer's uh, procedures, for example, if you've not raised a grievance, uh, then the tribunal has the same powers um, against you and they can lower your compensation by up to 25%. Okay, so it's really important then. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good source of guidelines, really, for employees. Um, If you've got any queries or you're not sure about something, uh, then the ACAS website offers a a wealth of um, information. Brilliant. Well, I've got a few more questions coming from immigration, and I want to be brief on them because I I know we've... uh, 
covered this topic quite in depth and there's a few more bits I wanted to tease out from Gears. Uh, but before I come to you, uh, Shaquille, let me reintroduce the show. This is Ask Your Lawyer. Um, thank you very much for all the um, phone-ins and WhatsApp messages, but you can continue to contact us on 01582 481822 or WhatsApp on 0779 481822 or emails at info at You're joined by Bodra Admin, a specialist in employment law, Shaquille Shah, a specialist in immigration, and Giza Udin, a specialist in criminal law. So, Shaquille, um, I've got a couple of questions for you. The first question uh, came in through uh, a listener listening to on it on the Facebook feed. And the question is, uh, I have a court hearing regarding a matter soon. Um, bear with me one second. I've misread that question. Yeah. Um, sorry, it's not coming up properly. Let me read you the first question and I'll come back to that one. Uh, the first question is, I've applied for my uh, wife's visa. This is from Kasim. I got the 2.6 month visa. The Home Office put my wife on 10 years route than five years route. Can I still apply for an, an remain to leave uh, rem, uh, infinite re, uh, to remain visa after five years? So um, uh, the question was uh, regarding the wife's visa. So the visa, the route they chose, because there are two routes to um, uh, indefinite leave to remain. One is the partner's route, which is usual spouse route, which is five years. Two, two and a half years and then two and a half years again. After five years, you can apply for um, uh, permanent residence settlement. However, this, this application, uh, by the looks of it, it looks like they're given a partner visa. It's not a spouse visa, but it's uh, a visa by the way of a British partner and it's under European human rights, which means it's a 10 years rule. So they started from a 10 years rule, which means they have to complete 10 years because they may not have met the requirements in the first place, and they were put onto that rule just by the, for the, from the Home Office. So they have to follow that um, for 10 years. Okay, Yeah. thanks. The next question is, um, is in relation to employment and an application still pending at the Home Office. Um, while you have an application pending, can, are you still able to work? Uh, it depends on what is the application and what was the status of the applicant before making the application. Uh, if he was entitled to work before making the application, that means it, the same rule would apply. He's entitled to work until the matter is decided. And if he was an overstayer or he had no right to work, before the application, that means he is not on this. He's not entitled to work unless a home office authorizes him by the way of certificate, saying that meantime you can uh, have an employment. And does this apply to visa extensions? Uh, yes, it's the same applies to visa extensions as well. Brilliant. Right. Thank you very much for that, Shaquille. No. Gears, coming back to you on criminal. So we've covered first appearances, magistrates. Can you talk to me a little bit about um, what to expect at a Crown Court trial um, or you, more uh, precisely your personal experiences of of any trials or notable cases that you may have had? Yeah, I could talk to you about notable cases probably because um, explaining what happens at the Crown Court probably get quite mundane to be honest with you. Um, the case that I wanted to speak to you about um, 
that I normally speak to about goes back to this question that not a lot of people um, ask me when I tell them that I'm a criminal practitioner. And they always say to me, oh, um, how can you represent these kind of people? How can you represent these criminals? Um, and you get that accusatory look. Um, basically, the simple answer is that the law provides that everyone is entitled to legal advice. Um, and if criminal practitioners didn't exist, my opinion is that there would be an increase in the number of miscarriages of justice that there's been. Previously, we would have heard of famous cases like the Guildford Four, Birmingham Six. People have been exonerated later on. All sorts of things have happened within the police stations and, 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 and there's been miscarriages of justice. Um, I want to go back to my f- one of the very first cases that I did for, after I qualified, um, and it was in the previous law, that, law firm that I was working at. Um, I just want to say that um, I don't, in, I'm not in any way um, denigrating from the seriousness of the offence that I'm going to speak about, and I would thoroughly encourage everyone to report any kind of violence towards them or any kind of. Uh, uh, I'm not looking to dissuade anyone from reporting allegations. So, the basic premise of the story is a, a local person um, who happens to be in the same background as me. Um, he got invited to go to the police station for a domestic-related violence matter. When he turns up to the police station, he gets interviewed and charged in relation to something much more insidious. Um, I'm not going to go over the offence here. Let's just stick to the facts and say that it's based is a offence based on consent. Um, I'm sure the listeners can read between the lines. It's a very insidious allegation. Um, so eventually he answers questions and he's refused bail and he's remanded in court, uh, and meaning that he has to await his court uh, court trial date, essentially spending in prison. Um, the evidence in the case is quite strong against him. His wife and his ex-wife has given a really detailed um, video interview. And you, I've see, I saw the uh, interview very very detailed very sad he goes into detail about everything and it's, it's very convincing um the police would have thought it was convincing and i don't blame them in any way i thought it was convincing and in reality in my early stages of my career i thought that the client was um guilty as well however obviously you remain professional and you want to represent your client and you want to do the best that you can for them so he's refused bail and he's languishing languishing away in in a prison and one of the main accusations, main parts of this accusation was that he was very controlling, very violent towards this person, um, took her phone, X, Y, Z, and kept on verbally and physically abusing her. Um, now, this chap, um, he was technically over overstay, and that's part of the reason why he was in prison. Uh, and it, truth be told, he wasn't particularly likeable. His defence was pretty wishy-washy. All he kept on saying is, I haven't done it, I haven't done it, I haven't done it. And he wasn't really giving me much material uh, with which to fight the case. Um, now, about five months into the case, I've been going and seeing him in the prison. He'd been there giving me drips and drabs of information. But um, something really unfortunate happened. Whilst he was in remand, there were nobody used to go and visit him. He had no contact with the outside world. So basically, he had one friend, I suppose, his ex-boss, who would occasionally contact him on the phone. So I went to see him one particular day uh, and he was in bits. He was really, really depressed and crying. And I asked him what's wrong and he said, well, look, listen, there's no point carrying on with this defence. I'm just giving up. And I, I asked him what's wrong and he revealed to me that he'd got word from that ex-boss of his that his mother had passed away and he had literally given up, up on everything. Eventually, um, the, the, um, he told me that I must get a phone off the police um, 
to see what's in his phone which would help in his defence. So after much ado, we we got the phone off. I downloaded it, uh, uh, some recordings from it, and what he'd been do- doing with recordings some arguments between him and his ex-wife. And she came across as very, very aggressive. Um, contrary to what she'd claimed about control, it was her that was doing it. So we presented that in front of the court in trial, and lo and behold, she didn't even turn up for the second half of the uh, uh, trial. Unanimous not guilty verdicts. And that goes back to good um, lawyers being able to test evidence because if they if if they weren't de- uh, criminal defense lawyers nobody would have tested that evidence and he would have been convicted amazing story i think this is the end of our show um thanks again for tuning into inspire fm and we'll look forward to seeing you next time thank you to my guests Asalaamu alaikum.